CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. PQ Beat is the official podcast of the Parksville Qualicum Beach News. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter McCulley. Former CBC producer Laura Palmer is the host of the podcast Island Crime. She's just launched her fifth season of the True Crime series, which explores the deaths of three people in Whiskey Creek Halloween night 2020. Thanks for joining us today, Laura. Thank you for having me. Before we dig into the various seasons and topics of your podcast, perhaps you could tell us about your background. How did you get started in the media business? I actually started when I was 14. I worked on a kid's radio show. But then that was for fun, a bit of a lark. And then after I graduated from university, I was trying to figure out really what I wanted to do. And I started doing traffic on the Vancouver morning radio show for CBC. When you're in that morning radio newsroom, it's so much fun. It's exciting. There's always something going on. You have a huge audience. And I really fell in love with being part of that morning radio news team. And so as soon as an opportunity came up to start working as a researcher, I grabbed it. And I stayed there for 25 years, working largely in radio. But, you know, with an organization like the CBC, you get a chance to do a bunch of things. And I worked in TV a little bit worked in news, current affairs, all over the place. Then, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to move to the island. And CBC, at this point, didn't have a bureau in Port Alberni, which is where I live. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they ever will. I just took the opportunity to do something different. Podcasting is one of those rare things where you really don't need a lot of money or equipment to set yourself up and do something. You need to have some passion and an idea and ideally some skills in terms of the story you're trying to tell. But it doesn't take much to actually get up and running. It was just three years ago that I started all of this. And here I am five seasons in. Let's talk about that. What inspired you to focus your podcast, the topic specifically on crime stories? And what criteria do you consider when deciding which stories you're going to pursue. So I've always been interested in crime, reading Nancy Drew when I was growing up and loving Law and Order and all those kinds of shows, reading all the mysteries as a young adult as well. And so when I worked at the CBC, I think it's fair to say there was a bit of snobbery, I think, around crime stories. It was like felt to be... And I'm going to try and put this politely a bit beneath us to cover crime. People who did stories about crime, they were looked down on a bit, I would say. And so we didn't do a ton of crime coverage on the shows I worked on. But when we did, I always thought it was interesting to focus on the victims, to focus on the issues around the crime, and not so much on the kind of grisly detail that maybe true crime is known for in the podcast genre. You think about true crime and podcasting and you think of all of the hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there that are devoted to serial killers or all kinds of gruesome details. That's not at all what I was interested in. I was interested in crime stories, but I wanted to try and approach it in a different way. Perhaps you could talk briefly about your first four seasons 
and then we'll talk about the fifth season. It's not possible for me to talk briefly. <laughs> no, I, I'm joking, but it's fair to say that I go into a lot of depth in those seasons. Season one, the story of Lisa Marie Young's disappearance, a young woman from Nanaimo who was 21 when she vanished in 2002. I've done now 13 episodes, and some of them are an hour long each. There's a fair amount of depth in all of these seasons, but I think that the thing that would be true of all of them is that they're all island-based mysteries, stories that are unsolved of missing or murdered people, where... For one reason or another, there hasn't been the kind of depth on the storytelling that I thought I could bring to it. So even if you take, for example, Michael Dunahy's disappearance, when I first thought about Michael's story, I thought, what can I possibly bring to this story? It's more than 30 years old. Michael's family have been on Oprah. They've been on Geraldo. This has been a huge story that's been widely covered. What can I bring to it? And then I started talking to people and realized that a tiny fraction of that story had only ever been told because you were talking to the same people all of the time and devoting a small amount of time focused very tightly on the disappearance and then on the legacy of Michael's case in terms of his family holding their annual runs and pushing for answers for Michael. But when I approached the story, I talked to everybody. So when you get a chance to go into that kind of level of detail and research on a story, inevitably you find more. And I think that's true for every season that I've done so far. Well, season five has just been released, the first few episodes at least, and it explores the deaths of three people in Whiskey Creek, Halloween night, 2020. Perhaps you could outline the story, how it started, how you got involved, where you are with it at this point. People listening may or may not recall that on that night, there was three people who were shot, their homes burned to the ground, out in the woods near Whiskey Creek. This was a story in the news headlines for a few days after it happened, and it did get a lot of coverage, intense coverage, in that moment in time. But I think it's fair to say after that, it pretty much dropped off. Local reporters try to keep the story alive on anniversaries, but the problem is there's very few people who are willing to talk about the case. The police aren't updating it, the coroners aren't talking, and the families, for the most part, are too fearful to speak publicly about the case as well. So to me, it just seemed not acceptable to have that level of violence happen right here on our doorstep and not really understand what was going on. I heard about it at a time when I was doing research into some of the men who have gone missing on Vancouver Island. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, I had no idea there were all of these encampments out in the woods where homeless people who are addicted, just people who have been priced out and pushed out of their communities are living out in the woods. And then when I heard about this horrible massacre that had happened at one of these encampments, I thought I could do some work around trying to figure out who were these people, what led up to this. And where has it taken you thus far? So I've gotten to know some of the families of these victims. And I should add, 
I was approached by the mother of one of the victims who really felt that no one cared about her son dying in this tragic circumstance. And she also was worried that because the public didn't seem to care, that maybe the police weren't going to be doing as rigorous an investigation as they might do if there was a lot of public pressure. So I think that was part of the reason she approached me. When you start talking to family members of victims, it immediately becomes a very different story. Initially, when I read the reports, all you heard was two people had been identified and they had extensive criminal pasts. The police were saying, nothing to worry about here. This is a targeted thing. There's no public danger. And I think for a lot of people, that might be where it ends. But I'm hoping once they listen to the stories of the victims of Whiskey Creek, they might feel a little bit differently. At least two of the people who were shot that day, I believe, were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Even if you don't care about people who are in a criminal lifestyle who may end up being victims in this horrible circumstance, you might care if you know that there were people who were just wrong place, wrong time. I think about, for example, the Surrey 6 story from a few years back. It was a gang hit, but two people, a plumber and a neighbor, get caught in the crossfire and die there. I recall from that time working in the newsroom, it was a bit of a turning point for how people perceived some of the gang violence that was happening in the Lower Mainland, because it wasn't just a bunch of bad people doing bad things, killing each other. It was people who were innocent victims just happened to be there and get killed. And in Whiskey Creek, I can't say with certainty that's true, but it appears to me that's what happened in this case as well. You mentioned you were approached by the mom of one of the victims, Mm -hmm. and that brings up a question. As a crime podcaster, how do you approach interviews with victim suspects or their families? There's a lot to consider when you're trying to take their voices into account and have them heard respectfully. I said at the outset that I want to do things differently, that I believe in this idea of trauma-informed reporting, that you can have an approach that is respectful and empathetic as well. But it's never going to be perfect. And as much as I will have times where I feel like I've really made a connection with a family and I feel like they're telling me it's worthwhile. And in some cases, really, it's making a huge difference to how they're being able to process the grief. Sometimes I get feedback from people that is not that. And sometimes families are divided. I had a missing person case where I had a great relationship and a conversation with a mother and an uncle, number of people surrounding this young guy who had gone missing. And then, unfortunately, someone else in the family, another relation, didn't want that. He really felt like he did not want his family member's case being publicized. It's one of those things where in families, you're not always going to get agreement And so in that case, all I can do is be respectful, understand that not everybody is going to want to talk about it. And that's fine. It's more than fine. We both worked in newsrooms throughout our career at some point or another. And there's always a rewarding aspect to covering a story properly and feeling good about it. And what I wonder is 
the rewarding aspect for you of Island Crime Podcast. Is there a particular story or interaction with family members or a listener that stands out to you? I think any time I have a relationship with a family member and they are telling me that they feel it's worthwhile, they feel like it could be helping the case or helping awareness, that is always satisfying. The one that stands out for me, I'd say right now, is Lisa Marie Young's case. When I came to it a few years ago, there was a bit of a sense from the family, I'd say, that the community was forgetting about Lisa, that there was a feeling that they didn't want the posters up anymore, and people were saying, hey, it's been almost 20 years, it's like this family should move on, they're never going to solve this case. And I think there's been a real change in that attitude. The mayor declares an annual day for justice for Lisa in the community. There's been a feeling in the community now that more people are coming out to the march. Billboards have gone up. There's signs on the buses now. The family feels like they have the support in the community. And that's not at all about the podcast, but it's part of it. How long would you work on a season before its release? So mostly I spend six months to a year on each season. But last summer, I was approached by Amber Manthorne's friends. She had just gone missing at that point, and they wondered if I could do anything to help raise awareness and get the word out about Amber. And for a moment, I thought, I'm not in the breaking news biz anymore, and podcasts aren't necessarily the right place to tell some of those kinds of stories because they are so dynamic. But then I thought, maybe there is something I can do here. And again, with that victim focus, I did spend maybe two months trying to work on Amber's story and get it out there as quickly as possible. So in that case, I turned it around a lot faster. But I would say with all of my stories and my seasons so far, because there is no actual end to any of them, I continue to work on them. So even when the season's over, if I'm learning new information or if I have some time to chip away at an angle, then I'll update and refresh the season when I can. Well, that's a lot of time to spend on a number of stories. You're obviously taking a really deep dive into these subjects and getting to know the families and whatnot. How does all of this impact you personally? I'm pretty good at separating my work from my life. I can go out and do a really emotional, hard interview and then come home and spend some time in the garden or cooking or with my family and just kind of reset myself. There are times, and I would say with Michael Dennehy's story, I remember one moment family had shared some home video with me. And I had never actually seen any of that of Michael before. I'd seen the pictures, his lovely little face with his little bow tie. And I had connected with him and the family in that way. But sitting there watching that home video, I just remember thinking, oh, my God, this is horrible. And watching that perfect little family together and then thinking about the 30 years afterwards, you're just struck by how awful that crime is. And that did sit with me for a while. But it's like anything. A lot of people have jobs that have a lot of trauma in them. You just pick yourself up and go on and hope that your work is bringing something of value to the families. 
years ago, I was doing a story about a missing and murdered woman in Vancouver. I was getting a little teary as I was talking to this person. I remember the woman said to me, we don't need your tears. We need you to do your job. And she was right. Yes, of course, it's hard sometimes to hear these stories, but it's our job to tell those stories and make people want to listen. Are there any island crime cases or particular topics that you're eager to explore in the future? So I have a list, a running list, and it's more than 50 cases right now that I would like to take on, which continues to surprise me because when I started this, I did have a bit of concern that maybe the island is not that big and I would run out of cases that I would be interested in telling. And unfortunately, that's not true. This island, as beautiful as we know it is, has a lot of dark stories to tell and a lot of unsolved crimes and missing people. So every season, I try and approach something that's a little different. I don't always want to be telling stories about young women who have been murdered. You know what I mean? That's the true crime cliche. So I look for a range of different kinds of stories to tell. Maybe it'll be like a financial crime next time. I don't know. But I do have a long list that I want to tell in the future. We'll be listening. Thank you. Laura Palmer is the host of the podcast, Island Crime. That's this edition of PQ Beat. If you have comments or suggestions, you'll find our contact information on our website, pqbnews.com. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com.